Well, the National Pest Management Association, yes, there is such a thing, they report that 97% of pest professionals treated bed bugs in 2018. 97%. 84% of those called for pest problems, 84%, they were contacted for another problem, but then found a bed bug infestation in the home. 84% of calls. It is likely that you have bed bugs. You're welcome. Do you want to know how you can find them? I'm going to tell you anyways. They're sometimes difficult to spot with the naked eye, but if you take a UV light over your sheets tonight and scan the surface, the light will expose their bioluminescent exoskeletons and even expose their droppings. Statistics from pest management companies suggest that one in five homes, one in five homes in America have bed bugs. One in five. You're welcome. Just a public courtesy reminder. You know, if, uh, if I took a light, on a more serious note, if I took a light to your private life, statistics tell me And these are statistics for people in the church. Statistics tell me that 65 to 70% of men have looked at pornography within the last month. 15 to 20% of women have looked at pornography in the last month. These are statistics for people who regularly attend church. Obviously, for those who don't, it's much higher. This isn't just an infestation out there. It's in here. It's in our church. It's in your home. It's even in your pockets. These are staggering statistics that reveal an even deeper sin issue in our hearts. A sin issue that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be exposed, rooted out, cut out, and radically removed. Uh, This is what Jesus addresses in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. I have one question for you. I'll ask the same question throughout the sermon and at the end of it. How seriously do you take your sin? How seriously do you take your sin? Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. Point number one. If you've lusted, plead guilty. You remember last week we looked at the topic of anger and murder. My first point last week was if you're angry, plead guilty. You're guilty alongside the murderer with the sin root of anger. Similarly, this week, if you've lusted, Plead 
guilty. The one who's lusted is put alongside the person who's commit adultery, both guilty of the same sin, the same sin root. Look at verse 27 with me. Jesus says, similarly, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. This is a familiar commandment in the Ten Commandments. This is the seventh one. Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. I don't know if you knew this, but in the commandments, even under the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, you get this line. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So, it should have been apparent even under the Old Testament law, that not only was adultery, the act of adultery, sin, but the desire for another's spouse was also declared a sin, coveting another's spouse. So to, but to understand adultery, you have to understand marriage. We need to go back and talk about what God's design for sexual intimacy, for romantic intimacy is. And it is to be expressed in the covenant of marriage. You remember a couple months ago, we were in the marriage and family series. And we define marriage this way. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. It's God's beautiful design for intimacy, both sexually and emotionally, and even spiritual intimacy. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If you remember my illustration, I illustrated this like two streams converging into one river. Imagine these two streams converging together and they become one river. This is a picture of marriage. So all of this man's life and all of this woman's life comes together, and they are inextricably connected. The rest of their life flows together, everything. Finances, your bed, your home, your relationship, your time. It's all together in the one flesh relationship. This is the nature of the covenant relationships, the two streams converging and inextricably becoming one by covenant. And remember, This isn't just a covenant between you and your spouse. This is a covenant before God. Three parties involved in a marriage. The man, the woman, and God. God condemns the people of Israel for their adultery in Malachi 2, verse 14. Listen to what the Lord says. The Lord was witness between you and and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been unfaithful, though she is your companion companion, and your wife by covenant. Adultery, as defined by God, is breaking your covenant. It is unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. Not only between you and your spouse, again, but it is unfaithfulness to God. Breaking your covenant before God. And adultery, if you can go back to the stream illustration or the river illustration, is pursuing 
a one flesh relationship with someone who isn't your spouse. So you're diverging your stream from the one flesh river to connect it in some way with someone who's not your spouse. Adultery goes deeper than just sexual intimacy outside of the marriage covenant. God forbids coveting another's spouse, desiring them. This could be a desire for sexual or emotional intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. Or it could be a desire for even a spiritual intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. It's desiring them in some way. I think often we think of adultery and we we relate it ultimately to the sin of sexual lust. There are other forms of lust that cause us to covet another spouse, someone who's not ours. But God's design for intimacy, all intimacy, romantic, including sexual, emotional, and spiritual, is designed for to be uh, expressed in the marriage covenant. Only a man and his woman in that covenant relationship. You know, in the Old Covenant, the act of adultery was considered a serious offense before God. Like murder, adultery was punishable to death under Old Covenant law. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It's a serious offense. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, if we fast forward to the New Testament, they're the new law enforcers of the New Testament uh, era, and they were eager, eager to enforce this law. In fact, in one account in John chapter 8, they throw an adulteress in front of Jesus and they say, shall we stone her? They called for her life because she had committed adultery. They were eager to apply the letter of the law. This woman should be put to death. Or if a man commits adultery, he shall be put to death. And they boasted in themselves, because at least they looked faithful to their spouses. But Jesus now points and shows them not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of it. The heart of it. And under the heart of the law, these men were just as condemned as the rest, you and I. Look at verse 28. He says, But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. One look, elongated, stare, condemns you as an adulterer. Just like the angry person and the murderer, Jesus puts the luster and the adulterer both under the gavel, both guilty, both subject to punishment and death. You're guilty. If you've lusted, Plead guilty. It's not enough, Jesus says, to avoid the act of adultery. You must avoid the heart of it. 
Jesus describes here, look back at verse 28, looking at a woman with lustful intent. He's describing staring at her in the heart. So he's describing a stare at the heart. I often tell my kids, stop staring. Now, you can stop looking easily, but you can stay staring, can't you? Our eyes are like cameras, capturing images. We could quickly look away, but we can continue to replay the image in our brains. That's what Jesus is describing here. Sometimes looks are unavoidable. A scantily dressed person comes across our path. A surprise scene in a movie that we didn't expect. Maybe a new billboard on the street. The question is, what will you do after the look? What will you do with the image that your eyes just captured? Jesus says, choosing to gaze longer, choosing to look again with desire, choosing even to replay the image in your mind is a willful choice to commit adultery without even touching the other person. It's allowing your imagination to contemplate the action inwardly without even expressing it outwardly. It's sin. It's adultery. David's adultery with Bathsheba, that did not begin when he took her into his chambers. David's adultery with Bathsheba began on the rooftop when he saw her bathing and he desired her for himself. Here's an interesting thought. If the action never came about, if David had left Bathsheba alone physically, yet lusted after her mentally, he still stands guilty before the judgment seat of heaven. Guilty of adultery. In the most devious part of adultery, especially adultery hidden in our hearts or hidden in the secret places of our lives is that you and I are deceived into thinking nobody knows about this. Nobody can see in here. I'm good. You've forgotten who the judge is. Do you remember who we stand before? It's holy God who sees everything. Holy God, who not only sees the secret things that you do in the privacy of your bedroom or the privacy of your closet, but He sees the secret things hidden in the privacy of your heart. He knows. It is exposed before Him. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Imagine the horror. Imagine the horror. If we were able to put all your thoughts from the past week up onto these projector screens, what kind of filth might we see? The reality is, you and I are tempted to live our lives forgetting that that is exactly what God sees. It's as if the images are displayed on a projector screen before Him. He knows your heart. The good, the bad, and the filth. If you've lusted, plead guilty. 
God knows it. You've committed adultery. You've broken your covenant with your spouse. Before God, you have defiled your heart. We need to see our sin for what it really is. It is an egregious sight for God. It is rooted in our heart and it produces all kinds of wicked and filthy thoughts that can and will eventually produce wicked and filthy actions. Have you lusted? Have you pleaded guilty? If so, what can you do? What can you do? You stand before holy God guilty. Where will you go? Well, there's only one place you can go. One place. You remember that Jesus told us purity in the heart is what's required to see God. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Psalm 24 says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Many of you out there today say, Well, I've got clean hands. I've never commit the act of adultery. But none of us has a pure heart. What can we do? Where can we go? How can your heart be cleaned today? Some of you convicted by the Word of God, you have this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, and you want to be cleaned. You want freedom. Desperately. But you think it's impossible. You think it's far-fetched. There's no way that you can have hope from out of this sin because that's how this sin works. It's so deeply rooted and pervasive in your life that it, it controls everything. I know that you want to be pure. I know that you want to be cleaned. Those of you who are enslaved to sexual sin, whether it's pornography, lust, even in the acts of adultery, freedom and cleansing is what you're looking for today. You're looking for that. The deceitful of sin, the deceitfulness of sin has convinced you that it cannot be found. Where can you go? What can you do? Let me ask you this. Where did the prostitute go? In Luke chapter 7. She went to Jesus. She fell at the feet of her Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. What did she do to earn these words from Jesus Christ? Jesus told her, Your sins, though many, are forgiven. Do you want to hear that from the Lord today? Your sin, though many, are forgiven? What did she do? What did this prostitute do? She did nothing except wash his feet with her alabaster jar and through her tears of repentance and sorrow. Go to Christ. Heart opened, sorrowful and repentant over your sin. Turn to Him by faith. Confess and admit your guilt. Plead guilty and ask Him for salvation. Jesus told the prostitute, your faith has saved you. Her faith. That's all we can do is believe that Jesus can cleanse us and forgive us of our sin. Do you crave forgiveness? Do you want to be washed clean? 
fall at the feet of Jesus and pray this prayer with David after he commit adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall, listen to this friend, be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. This is the prayer of the repentant. That is the person who sees the ugliness of their own sin, sees how awful and horrific it is. They know that their offense ultimately is against a holy God. They turn from that sin and embrace Jesus Christ the Savior by faith and say, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Cleanse me, wash me, forgive me of my sin. David goes to the right person, the God of his salvation. That's where you need to go today with this sin. If you've lusted, plead guilty, run to Christ. Forgiveness, atonement, and the cleansing for your heart can only be found in Him because Jesus took the punishment for that filth. He bore the wrath of God against the unfaithfulness of men and women who commit adultery both outwardly and inwardly. You need to know there's mercy, there's grace, there's cleansing, there's freedom offered to you today, caught in sexual sin. Jesus offers you today what He gave the prostitute. Your sins, though many, can be forgiven. Your faith will save you. Take your filth, take your guilt, take your tears and your alabaster jar to the feet of Jesus Repent by faith today. And you can be washed. And once you've been washed, once you've been cleaned, heed the second command He gives the adulteress in John 8. He says, go and sin no more. So here's where Jesus gets practical. He's exposed the sin of lust in our hearts. And then in verse 29 and 30, He gives us a very practical way of avoiding it. Avoiding it. Point number two, if you're tempted, remove radically. If you're tempted to sin, remove radically. Look at verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's serious, isn't it? I mean, just feel the sharpness of that illustration. Cutting off my hand, gouging out my eye to avoid sin. 
It's better that you go without those things in this life so that you could have eternity in the next, eternal life in the next. Let me ask you something. Would you do it? Would you do that? Would you gouge out your eye or cut off your hand to avoid sin? Origen, Origen, one of the early church fathers, after reading this passage, he was so convicted by his own sinfulness that he had himself castrated in application. Is Jesus really suggesting here that we cut something off our bodies? Lose, here, here to make it even more serious, in, in the first century, first of all, why right hand and right eye? Because in, in first century, that was considered the strong hand, the strong eye. Sorry for those lefties out there. But the right hand, the right eye was considered your strong eye, your strong hand. And so Jesus is suggesting that you cut out the strong eye and the strong hand to avoid sin, to avoid hell, ultimately. And so think about this. In the first century, if you lose your strong hand, if you lose your strong eye, you basically lose your life. You know, today, if you lose a hand or you lose an eye, there's job options for you. For some of you, it would change your career entirely. But there's ways for you to be cared for in today's society. But you lose your right hand, your strong hand, your strong eye in New Testament times, you're jobless. You're, you're, you better just go to the streets and sit down and hold out your other hand and ask for loose change. You're a beggar. Give up everything if you lose your strong eye and your strong hand. Especially the men. Jesus is asking you to forsake the essentials the valuables, the precious possession that you have in this life so that you may not go to hell in the next life. These words, in fact, are very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So I ask you again, would you do it? Consider it. Would you do it? Would you go blind in this life so that you may see in the next? Would you go lame in this life that you may embrace the next? Will you take your sin seriously and radically remove temptation? This question is important for you to consider in order to understand the weight or the sharpness of what Jesus is really saying here. See, I think pastors and preachers who teach this passage, move too quickly to say, oh, don't worry. Jesus is using hyperbole here. That means he's exaggerating to make a point. Oh, don't worry. You don't have to lose your eye or your hand. You don't really need to cut it out. You're off the hook, essentially. I think that dulls the blade of this passage. It is a hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating. He just told us that the sin issue is a heart issue, right? And so cutting off the hand or gouging out your eye isn't going to help or solve the problem in your heart. 
But the point of this passage is sharp. Get radical, Jesus says. Take extreme measures to remove temptation in your life, even if it costs you something precious or something valuable. John Calvin writes this, The justice of God ought to stand higher in our estimation than all that we reckon most precious and valuable. You ought rather to part with your eyes than to part from the commands of God. Again, I ask you, how seriously do you take your sin? Avoiding it may cost you, but purity from the heart is worth it. Don't save this life to lose the next. You know, some things in your life ought to be torn out, ought to be cut off and thrown away. I'm not talking about limbs or appendages, but it might make your life more inconvenient or uncomfortable or awkward. It might cost you your reputation. You might get made fun of. You might be called Billy Graham for practicing the Billy Graham rule and not having a lunch or a meal alone with someone who's not your spouse. But you know, you know, before the Lord, some things need to be radically removed from your life to avoid temptation because they are doors of temptation for you. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's quick internet access on your smartphone. Solomon calls the young man a fool who intentionally walks by the adulteress's house. He says in Proverbs 5.8, he says, Heed my wisdom, son. Hear my words. Keep far away from her. Don't go near her door. I wonder what Solomon might say when now in the 21st century the adulterous woman is in your pocket. Do you think Solomon's suggestion, his wisdom might be, you got to get rid of that thing. Or you got to put some blocks on that thing so that you don't get close to the adulteress's door. You can get rid of social media. It's not an arm. It's not an eye. You don't need it. You can charge the phone outside of your bedroom as a first step instead of charging it inside so close to the privacy of it. You say, oh, I use my phone for an alarm clock. Buy an alarm clock. Throw away your smartphone if you have to. Get a dumb phone. Collect your email at a public computer or elsewhere. Because listen, here's the 21st century interpretation. It's better to lose your smartphone than to lose your soul to sin. Maybe for some of you it's a coworker on your work team. Maybe it's a work from home dad in the neighborhood. Maybe it's a woman at your local coffee shop. This person has caused you to stumble, caused you to covet them. You and the Lord know it. Get rid of them. Not in a a Godfather type way. (laughs) You can't get rid of them that way. But you know, you can easily turn your desk at work. You can find another office space. You could transfer departments if you have to. You can go to another coffee shop, even if it's further away, even if the coffee's just a little bit more bland, even if it's kind of inconvenient. 
You can get out of the house during the day. Shut the blinds. Cut off all interactions with others unless your husband is with you or your wife. It's better, listen, to lose pay, to lose time, to even lose your popularity or your reputation and look awkward than to lose your soul to sin. How seriously are you taking your sin? Are you taking it this seriously? Are you radically removing temptation from your life? Are Jesus' commands, is purity from the heart more precious to you than even social media and these other things that you can easily cut out to avoid temptation? And know this, if you say, well, Morgan, I can't get rid of those things. How am I going to get the news if I don't have social media? How can I check my emails if I don't have internet? How can I really transfer departments? It's going to be like a, you know, I don't know, a 5,000 a year pay cut. Know this, know this. You're choosing not to save your right eye. You're choosing not to save your right hand, which we can make an argument is necessary for your life. These are important things. You're choosing the comforts, conveniences, reputation, and wealth of the 21st century over Jesus' commands. And if that's the case, Jesus says you're choosing hell. You're choosing hell in the next life for the comforts, conveniences, reputation, and wealth of this life. What's more precious to you? The heart of one who is pure? The heart of Christ? Or these temporary things that can be cut off? How radical will you get? How seriously will you take your sin? The sword of this passage is pointed at your heart today. It was pointed at mine all week. We need to respond by radically removing temptation. Cut off those things in your life that tempt you to sin, and that sin eventually leads to destruction and hell. Jesus takes it to the extreme so that we might be radical in our removal of temptation. Well, in this passage, there's definitely an emphasis on radical removal. Jesus talks about gouging out, tearing out, throwing away here, which is important. And it's the principle of putting off, putting off sin. You'll see this in the rest of Scripture and even in the epistles. But what's really important to not only put off sin, it's important to put on righteousness, to pursue things that will help you avoid temptation, that will deter you from sin. Okay, so you need to put off and put on. So it's not necessarily in this text, but I want to give you four radical pursuits to add on once you've removed radical temptation, okay? So I want you to remove radical temptation. Jesus calls you to do that from this passage, but also four radical pursuits that will help you avoid the sin of lust, the sin of adultery. Now, your outline has three, but uh, I'm changing it, okay? Four. And I'm even changing the wording in some of these things. Okay, These are means of grace. If we indulge ourselves in them, we will walk in purity. These are really important to apply in addition to radically removing temptation. Number one, 
Hope in Christ. That comes before the three in your outline. Hope in Christ. Hoping in Christ will make you pure. Pure from the heart. 1 John 3.3 reads like this, Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Understand if you're a Christian, there is a cross and an empty tomb in front of you. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin and the guilt that comes with it and the shame. You no longer have to live under that weight. Jesus bore that weight and crushed it in his death, took that sin and buried it in the ground. And guess what? There's an empty tomb. Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that you can have newness of life, victory over sin and death. Read Romans chapter 6 and look at how, who you are in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're a new creation. You're no longer a slave to sin. Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and guess what? He's coming back. And hoping in Him, looking to Jesus, noting the cross and the empty tomb and His future coming will purify your heart. It will cause you to want to follow Him, to live for Him, to surrender the things of this world and embrace Christ and embrace Him fully. This is essential. To kill sin in your life, hope in Jesus. Set your eyes and your mind on Him. The things above, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Right, Philippians says, hoping in Christ. That's the first radical pursuit. Hope in Christ. The second radical pursuit. Enjoy your spouse. Not just pursue her or him. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Thomas preached a message on this passage in our marriage and family series. It is so critical. Proverbs chapter 5, the whole first half, tells you how to avoid the adulterous woman. Don't go next to her door. Don't walk by. Don't be a fool. But we often neglect the second half. You know what the second half tells you? To enjoy your wife. Enjoy the woman God gave you by covenant. Enjoy your spouse. Listen to these words, 15 to 19. Solomon says, Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. God gives us a great gift in our spouses. This is the person that we were meant to enjoy not only sexual, but emotional and spiritual intimacy with. They share our lives. They're our, uh, our one flesh, our truest companion by covenant. Enjoy them, Scripture says. And enjoy them often. Often. Let there be no droughts in your marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 says, unless you're, you're giving it over to God through prayer and fasting. But otherwise, let there be no droughts. Do not deprive one another of intimacy. Sexually, emotionally, men, remember, to provide that intimacy to your wife, you can really help your spouse. You know that? You can really help your spouse avoid temptation, both men and women, by providing that intimacy. 
that Scripture commands. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7.5. Do not deprive one another. Don't deprive one another. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You can help spouses. You can help your spouse by not depriving them of intimacy. Honor God, direct your passions toward one another, drink often from your own well. Thomas provided the illustration of cultivating your own garden so that you are not tempted to look elsewhere. This is a very practical and enjoyable pursuit for you to avoid temptation. Enjoy your spouse. Hope in Christ. Enjoy your spouse. Number three, know your Bible. Don't just read it. Know your Bible. Know your Bible to avoid temptation. Psalm 119.9 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. He says later in verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. You need to know God's word in order for it to be stored up, right? That, that involves a little bit more than just glancing it over or a quick read in the morning. Storing it in your heart so that it's ready to be used would include reading it, to study it, to memorize, to meditate, and then to be able to regurgitate it. To know the Word. Know it deeply. So that you can use it in life. Know your Bible in such a way that in every trial, in every temptation, no matter what it is, you have an answer. And it's not your answer, it's God's answer. From His book. The living Word. This is the sword, Christian. This is your sword to fight off the temptations of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 6. Do you know this book? Do you know this book well enough to use it? Here's a good place to start. Memorize. Memorize. Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. Memorize our passage today. Start by memorizing this passage and fighting sin in your life with it. Fight temptation with the Word, just as Christ did when He was tempted by the devil. Hope in Christ. Enjoy your spouse. Know your Bible. And four, very critical as well, fellowship with your church. Fellowship with your church. You can look at a definition of fellowship uh, in our discipleship lessons. It's a little bit more than the, the potluck, okay? Fellowship involves participation. Knowing one another. This is the kind of relationship that Scriptures call you to. And this will help you avoid sin and temptation. Hebrews 3.13. Look at this passage. But exhort one another every day. Who's the one another? Fellow believers in the church. How often? Every day. That's pretty regular, right? It goes a little bit beyond the Sunday morning gatherings. It's got to at least be Sunday morning gatherings and maybe a little bit more beyond that. Okay, but exhort one another every day if it's called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
There's a direct line, friends, between your fellowship at church and your spiritual walk. Your holiness, your sanctification, your growth. A direct line between the two. Many don't live this way. We don't consider this fact. If you're not active in the fellowship, it's likely that you're spiritually stagnant or declining in sin. If you are active or when you're active, it's likely that you're regularly challenged, that you're stimulated, that you're growing and you're repenting. This is how God designed us to live in fellowship with one another, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, 25. 24 and 25. You need me, and I need you for our purity. You want to pursue something that will help you fight temptation. Pursue one another. In the local church. Renew your commitment to men's study. Renew a commitment to women's study. Renew your commitment to a growth group, to one-on-one discipleship, to meeting with somebody regularly. At the very least, Sunday morning attendance. Sunday morning attendance, see that as a vital lifeline that you need to avoid sin. Renew your commitment. So that your commitment to even Sunday mornings is not easily broken. So your sanctification, your holiness depends on it. How seriously do you take your sin? How seriously do you take your sin? Are you ready to radically remove temptation in your life? Are you ready to even go to extreme measures so that you would not stumble and fall into sin? Are you ready to radically pursue these four things in your life? Hoping in Christ, enjoying your spouse, knowing your Bible, fellowshipping with your church. How seriously do you take your sin? That's the implied question in Jesus' radical hyperbole illustration here. You know how seriously God took it? God took it serious enough to send His own beloved Son to suffer, to die, to raise from the dead, to kill that sin and to kill its power in your life. Live your life like those things are true. That Christ really did conquer sin in your life so that you're no longer a slave or or coming under its power. He's freed you from it. Live like you're free. Radically remove any opportunity to go back to it and pursue holiness, pursue the things of God that will keep you pure and help you avoid temptation. You can start today by again, take your filth, your guilt, your shame to the feet of Jesus. Turn from it, trust in Christ wholly and completely. Repent of your sin. And you can find newness of life in Him if you haven't already. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people that takes our sins seriously. 
I pray that we would, if sin has been exposed in this room today, that people would turn from it, repent from their sin, and and trust in Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness and cleansing. Pray that you help us as Christians to do that regularly. We repent often and regularly, constantly turning from sin and temptation and trusting in Jesus. Help us to take radical steps, extreme measures to remove temptation in our life, sources of temptation, so that we may not sin, so that we may not eventually go to hell. Lord, but I pray that we would not just put off things in our life, but that we would put on righteousness, that we would fill our life with things that reflect Christ. First, we would hope in Jesus. We'd be men and women who enjoy our spouses. I I pray even for the singles here today, the singles who are burning with passion. I pray that you would direct a spouse to them. They would be married so they would not burn with passion. If they are single and young, I pray that they would wait and hold that gift of intimacy and wait for their future spouse. I pray for even older singles, maybe lost a spouse, never married. Those singles would also preserve and stay pure in their hearts, not giving intimacy to another who's not their spouse. pray that you'd make us pure, pure from the heart, seeking to follow you and obey you from the heart, that we would also know our Bibles and that we would, Lord, be a people that keep each other accountable, exhorting each other and encouraging each other. Pray that people would be known by one another and that they would know one another. These things are so important, important to you, O God. I pray that we would apply them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.